name's Lauren Jones. I'm a deacon here at Mercy View. Tonight we will be in Micah 5, verses 1 through 5. Micah 5, verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord is God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good evening, uh, Mercy View. My name's Trey. I am uh, the deacon for discipleship here at Mercy View, serve on staff. Uh, excited to open up God's word with you tonight as we bring our Advent series to a close. Um, it's interesting as we're sitting and, and going through the different aspects of our liturgy, um, there's a lot of stuff that I'm going to cover as we go through and unpack this text that the themes of which are present from the confession of sin all the way to some of the songs that we sang. And, and I think it's an awesome and, and just wonderful thing when without any coordination, the Holy Spirit just kind of sets some stuff up like that. Um, and so because of that, I, I think that... Um, there's some word of hope that is for someone tonight to hear in this. Um, and so before we dive into stuff, I just feel led to, to pray one more time before we jump into the scriptures. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you uh, have sent your son and you've sent your savior to come and to proclaim good news, God, to those who are uh, lost hurting. God, those who are desperately in need of salvation. I pray that tonight we would see that through the words of Micah, and we would see the way in which you, God, desire, get to continue to call us to yourself and to encourage us as you do. In Jesus' name. So the past few weeks, we've been looking at the way that the scriptures speak about the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Jesus Christ. And so we saw back in Genesis 3 in week 1, this prediction, this, this promise of one who would come from the line of Eve that would crush the head of the serpent. And then we saw in Isaiah 9 last week that this snake crusher, the one who was to come, he was going to be called Emmanuel, God with us. And tonight what we do is we get a glimpse into another prophetic voice, one who was a contemporary with Isaiah speaking in the same time in history. And in the book of Micah, what we see is a glimpse even more of who this redeemer of God's people was going to be. The God with us, we get to know more about who he is. And Micah is an interesting book because it's, it's more of a collection of oracles and prophecies and sermons that Micah would have preached over the course of his more than 50 years in ministry in the southern kingdom of Judah. 
in, in a lot of ways, Micah is less like a prophecy that's like the same exact thing taking place from the beginning to the end. It's more like a mixtape. Now, it's not like a greatest hits mixtape. It's not something that uh, you, you would say, okay, well, this is like a good sermon here and a good prophecy here. And he's bringing it and putting it together. There is a consistent theme that runs throughout the entire thing. There is a message that goes from beginning to end. And it starts with the fact that for the people of God, sin is a problem. Like the people of God in Judah are sinning in a way that they are living and tolerating injustice. And Mike is going to call them on that. And the consequence for this sin, it's going to be judgment. And God is not going to relent from disaster when people do not repent of their sins and turn back to him and obey him. And the people that Micah prophesied to, they would be keenly aware of this because he gives such a prophecy to the northern kingdom of Israel and they've been wiped off the map. They are out of the picture because the Assyrian empire has come and leveled them. However, though sin is a real problem, one that Micah wants to confront and that God is using him to confront and that God does in fact judge sin and sinners... There's hope. Scattered throughout the book, there are these oracles of hope and restoration, of rescue and redemption. And the text that we are unpacking tonight is one of those passages. It's probably one of the only verses from the book of Micah that you have, have ever read if you, if you haven't made it to this part in your Bible reading in a year plan, okay? Because... We hear it every year around Christmas time because it's quoted in Matthew 2. Verse 2 is, is the, the famous verse that the wise men come and they inquire of where the new king is. And Herod's like, what new king? And so he calls the chief priests and they go, well, the Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem. And they quote, they quote Micah chapter 5 verse 2 in Matthew 2. Micah's book is about the need for repentance from sin, about restoration and redemption for God's people, and about the one who would deliver that restoration and redemption. And in his short commentary, Micah, for you, Pastor Stephen Um says that where chapter 4 is all about the restoration that God's going to provide, what he's going to bring about through his restore, these five verses tonight are all about the restorer himself and who he is. And that's good news. Because what Israel needed in the dark days that they faced some 2,700 years ago is what you and I need tonight. We need to hear and know and see that God has a plan for redemption for his people. But not only that, we need to know that he is a planned redeemer who was coming, in fact, did come, and is coming again to make all things new. This is a prophecy about the first advent, but it's also just as much a prophecy about the second. It's about the true king born in obscure little Bethlehem and the great shepherd who rules with strength and majesty. So tonight, what I want us to do is I want us to look at three things from these five verses that I think uh, frame the passage for us, but not only frame the passage, they also help us to celebrate 
the first advent this week as we look forward to the second. And full transparency as I do that, the the three things that I'm pulling from, I actually pulled directly from, kind of modified the language a little bit from Stephen Um's commentary because as I read it, I said, well, yeah, that's exactly what the text is about. This is it. And so these three things I'm pulling from him, I want to give credit where credit is due because they were good and they're true. And I think they help us see tonight what it is that God would have us see from this text and from this passage. And so here's the first thing that we see here in our passage tonight, that our Redeemer, he is sympathetic toward us in our weakness and in our time of need. Look again at verse 1. It says, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. You see, this verse is a window into the way that God sympathizes with his people. But without knowing the full context of what's going on or what Micah is speaking into in his day, I I think that might be lost on us. You see, when Micah first spoke the words of this prophecy, the people of God were experiencing some really, really dark days. Like how dark of days are we talking about? Well, imagine with me for a moment that you are a citizen in the city of Jerusalem in about 701 BC. You've heard reports about what happened to your cousins up uh, north of you in Samaria and in the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom over the past six years, as the mighty Assyrian empire and army has made its way through their land and they've leveled every city they've come to, including Samaria, the capital. And where Israel's trying to meet might with might, the Assyrians break every single barrier they put up. And now, after seeing them defeated and carried off into exile, if they survived, for the past several months, this very same army has turned its attention toward your homeland, the southern kingdom of Judah. And the new king, Hezekiah, like he seems like a good guy and a good leader. I mean, after all, he's the one who has returned the nation to worshiping the one true God. He's the one who's torn down the high places and removed the altars to Baal and the Asherah poles. And he's the one who's reformed so many of the areas of civil and religious life. But you're not super sure about his foreign policy. Because even though he's done all of that, he decided it would be a good idea to kind of rebel against Assyria and stop paying tribute And it's like poking a sleeping bear. They've captured or destroyed most, if not all, of the other fortified cities in the kingdom. They've cut off supply lines. They've got everyone scared to leave the city walls of Jerusalem. And now, as you sit trembling in your home, there is a massive army that has encircled the capital city. Even the attempt to appease the king of Assyria, on the king of Assyria's terms has been thrown back in Hezekiah's face. Their general stands and he cries out almost daily, mocking the king and mocking Yahweh. And there just isn't a whole lot that it seems God's people can do. That's what's happening. It's a short synopsis of what's going on in 2 Kings 17 through 19, about verse 34. Like the situation is bleak to say the least. This unstoppable force that has subjected what seems like the entire world, kingdoms far larger, far stronger than Judah, 
They have surrounded Jerusalem and it seems like there is absolutely nowhere to go. And if it was you sitting in your home, afraid to step outside for dread of what you might see, I think the burning question that each of us would have and the burning question on the mind and hearts of the people of Israel, the people of God, is God, where are you? God, why is this happening? Have we not repented? But Nineveh repented and you spared them? Lord, why is this happening? We've torn down the high places. We trust in you, yet your enemies, they attack us and they mock us. And it seems like you do nothing. The general of Assyria's army in one of his tirades to the besieged city, he goes so far as to say, don't let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us and the city won't be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. He says, no, 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 trust me. Trust my king and my gods and don't believe that your God can save you. Look at what we've done. And it's into this moment in history that God sends his word to Micah that we've read tonight. And over his 50 years as a prophet, some of what God has given him to say, it's been bad news. But the passage that we've just read this evening is not a message of impending disaster. Rather, God sends Micah with a message of confident hope in the midst of great distress. A message of victory snatched from what seems like the jaws of defeat. And so here in verse 1, we see God doing something that is so amazing when we consider who God is. He acknowledges and he recognizes and he sympathizes with the plight of his people. He sees them in their distress and he addresses them in their distress as well. In the midst of what they are enduring, God paints this picture with words and he says to the people, oh, daughter of troops. He calls them daughter of troops because they are not mighty men or men of valor. They are a small, weak, and frail ragtag bunch of farmers and tradesmen. They are not what Assyria is. An army of hundreds of thousands of conscripted or of, of trained standing soldiers, not conscripted farmers. They have the power, they have the strength, yet God speaks directly to the weak and the frail. And he says, muster your troops. He acknowledges what's happened. He acknowledges what's going on. Yet he calls to them and says, oh, daughter of troops, muster your troops. Because he wants them to do battle? No. It's because even though they can't stand against Assyria, they have no hope to fight that army. God can. He's not going to let his great name be mocked in this way. And he has shown through the prophets like Jonah that when he chooses to send disaster and a people repent, he hears their cry and he turns from wrath that he's prepared to do. And so in the midst of the turmoil, in the midst of what Judah is facing, where is God? He's right there with them. He's speaking his word to the prophets. He's answering their prayers and he's promising them even more than victory in this moment. 
because that's the character of God. He's near to the brokenhearted. He is tender to the downcast. He's gracious to the wayward, and he's faithful to his people. Tonight, we might not be surrounded by an enemy army that threatens our lives or our livelihoods. But man, that confession of sin tonight, it reminds us that there is oftentimes this feeling that we are encircled and encamped against. That there is in fact an enemy of our soul beyond just the enemy. There's just situations and circumstances in life that make it feel as if the walls are closing in and there is nowhere to go. Then when the diagnosis is cancer or heart failure or some form of chronic illness that leads to prolonged and intense suffering, it's like an enemy is encamped outside the gates of your heart. When you're blindsided by the phone call from that loved one, that, that a parent or a sibling or a dear friend has lost their life sooner than anyone expected, it can feel as if an enemy is ready to bust through the gates of your heart. When you're losing the fight against besetting sin, when your marriage seems to be falling apart around you, when you've asked God again and again to to give you children or to, to give you a husband or a wife, and he seems to be silent, it can feel as if in these moments in our life, the enemy has already busted through the gates and they're tearing everything apart. And it's in these moments as our hearts feel as if they are under assault from all direction, that with Israel, we want to cry out, where are you, God? Do you see me? Have you forgotten me? Have you left me? And friends, tonight, the very first thing that we need to know as we look at this prophecy in Micah in our most desperate hour, when all hope seems lost, God has not forgotten us. He has not abandoned you. He is near. And more than that, he overflows with compassion towards you because he knows what it is to be besieged and to feel as if you've been left all alone. Because this great God took on flesh. Because on the cross, he bore this excruciating pain, not only of carrying your sin, but of having his father turn his back. And so the author of Hebrews can write, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. More than that, He has suffered in every way that we could possibly imagine, yet he is without despair because he has conquered. Getting ahead of myself, not only do we need to see that our Redeemer can sympathize with us, but we need to know that Jesus, our Redeemer, is this divine paradox. In his commentary, um, actually describes verses two to three as the restorer being unexpected. He does that because he's, he's highlighting where it is that Jesus comes from. Uh, I grew up in a town of about a thousand people and about five or six miles north is another town called Fordyce. And it's a bigger town. They got like 4,000 people. And as you drive into Fordyce on just about every welcome sign, 
there is a, a thing on there that says, Welcome to Fordyce, Arkansas, home of Paul Bear Bryant. Now, if you aren't up on your collegiate football history, Paul Bear Bryant was the coach of the Alabama Crimson Tide from 1958 to 1983. He won six national championships with the Crimson Tide, had a record of 232 wins and 46 losses. Like, he is a coaching legend. And he's from the little town of Fordyce, Arkansas, that probably 95% of this room had never heard of before. And that other 5% is me and my wife. Um, he, he is, uh, he, he was on their football team. He helped lead them to a state championship. And then he took that success out into the world. And we sing it often this time of year, but I think we fail to realize because we say the name so much, oh, little town of Bethlehem. Like nobody knew where Bethlehem was. Like as Joshua is recounting all of the cities that the people came and took when they entered the promised land, he doesn't even list it on the map. Like when they recount all of the places that Assyria has destroyed, Bethlehem isn't on the list. Because all that Bethlehem ever had to offer was that there's a little note on the sign when you roll into town that says, hometown of David, king of Israel, man after God's own heart. There is nothing but that to name, to to their name. And yet... In the midst of their distress, God says, I'm going to raise up another leader, and he's not going to come from in Jerusalem. He's not going to come from the halls of power. He's going to come from Bethlehem. He's going to come from that little place. And yeah, he's doing something there. He wants them to remember, hey, this is like David. But the reason he wants them to connect this new king with David is because all of David's sons had failed to live up to what he had given them. They had failed to honor God. Like the kings of Israel up to this point, the kings of Judah, they've been like a box of like strawberries that you have in your fridge. Like eventually one of them starts to get a little mold on it and then there's some of them that are still good. But if you just leave it sitting there, finally everything's just gonna be moldy and you gotta throw the whole box out. Probably just happens at my house. Um, That's what the kings of Israel and Judah were like. And where the kings born in the palaces had been a horrible bunch of folks, the king that was to come that's coming from Bethlehem, he was going to be a true king. He was going to be a good king. He's going to be born, but then get this, this is another reason that he is unexpected, that he is paradoxical. He's going to be born, but he is from of old. He comes from of old. That phrase is used two other times in all of the Old Testament, Habakkuk 1 and Deuteronomy 33. And in both cases, to say that someone is from of old means that they are talking of God as being eternal, of God as being from eternity past. This king that is coming, he is going to be something utterly different than the kings that they have had. He's going to rule and reign with something better. Kings come from palaces and rulers come from courts, but God's redeemer is gonna come from an obscure little city that no one could even point to on a map. If we consider what God is doing, we see that it is paradoxical. Probably hadn't used that in a sentence this week, so let me define it for you. A paradox is a situation, person, or thing that combines contradictory features 
or qualities. It's something that seems absurd on its face, even contradictory, but after further investigation, it proves to be true. And that's what we see here in verses two and three. We even start verse two, it says, but. And the but at the beginning of verse two, following the shaming of the king of Israel in verse number one, it marks more than just a transition in the sentence. It's a transition in the way in which God's people are gonna be ruled and reigned over. Scholar Bruce Walkie says in his commentary on the verse that the but reverses the situation from one that is of present defeat to the Messiah's triumph. The kings born in proud Jerusalem failed. The Messiah incarnate in lowly Bethlehem will triumph. The adjective rendered small describes not a quantity, but a quality. Elsewhere, it occurs in connection with weak and despised. By virtue of its choice as the site for the Messiah's birth, the most insignificant place will bring forth the most preeminent person. You see, the paradoxical nature of the gospel of the Redeemer is all over the scriptures. Remember what Paul says to the church in Corinth, that the message of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but it is wisdom and the power of God to those who are being saved. He says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what was weak or what was foolish to shame the wise, what was weak in the world to shame the strong, what was low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring about to nothing things that are. Even just considering the person of Jesus, co-eternal with the Father, yet pleased to dwell in human flesh, self-sufficient and self-sustaining, sustaining the entire world, yet incarnate as a helpless baby, wholly dependent on those who he created to care for him. He's the lion and the lamb, the first and the last, humble servant and risen king. I love the way that Um puts it. He says, Jesus has this way of identifying with the ordinary. But at the same time, he isn't merely ordinary. He was ordinary in the sense that he had a name like Jesus, which was a common name. He was also born in a manger, had a common trade, grew up in an obscure village. But on the other hand, he was the savior, God, the Lord. He was Yahweh himself. The restorer was unexpected. And that's the kind of restorer that we need. And maybe the greatest paradox of all, it comes as we juxtapose the first and the last point of our message this evening together. This idea of Jesus being the divine paradox, it holds these two thoughts together because on the one hand, we see that Jesus became like us and he can sympathize with our weakness. But because he is the king from of old, he possesses within himself the strength and majesty to shoulder and carry our burdens and to bear our cross. And that's the last thing that we need to see tonight. Our redeemer is strong and majestic. As Micah gets to verses four and five, what we realize, if we haven't already, is that this ruler who, he's not showing up on the scene today 
to take care of the Assyrian army that's encircled Jerusalem. The layers within this prophetic work go beyond the literary devices and metaphors. There is this, this peering into the future that the prophet knows he will never see with his natural eyes the Redeemer show up on the scene today. Sometimes prophecy in the Bible, it's like looking at a mountain range from a distance. I don't know if you've ever been somewhere like Colorado. You land in Denver and you're like, any good Oklahoma and you want to drive west and go see some actual mountains and not the hills that we have around here that we call mountains, right? And as you drive west toward the mountain range, as you're looking that direction, you, you see all of the mountain rising in front of you. And in the distance, you can see a peak and then you see what looks like the base. And as you get closer, what you realize is that the thing you thought was the base of the one mountain is fully in view. And that's a mountain in and of itself, and the peak is like still off in the distance. It's still a silhouette out in the distance. And prophecy is like that. Like if we look at a prophecy like Micah here in Micah 5, 1 through 5, and we think that it's all one thing, we flatten it. But the closer that we get to it, the more that we realize there is a perspective and a depth. Jesus' followers in the first century did this, right? They thought that because he had come and was born in Bethlehem, that meant that now that he's risen from the dead, he's going to now deliver the kingdom to Israel. And he says, that's not happening today, boys. It's not going on right now. There's something further down the road. The closer we get, the better our perspective gets. And so Micah knows that this is not a promise that God is going to send a redeemer today to fix the problem, but that something bigger is in view. It's a prophetic mountain range. Verse 1 and to some extent verse 6 are describing something that God is going to do or something that has happened in the present. And then verses 2 to 3 are describing the future, which we know now was the first advent, the coming of the Messiah. And then when we get down to verses 4 and 5, we come to that peak that is still in the distance. At first glance, it looked like the whole mountain. But the closer we've gotten, we now realize that Micah is describing something that theologians call the already, not yet. 2,000 years ago, Christ has come. His kingdom has come. We talk about him inaugurating his kingly rule by his triumph over sin and death. However, he has not yet put every last enemy under his feet. He's already reigning, he's already ruling, but he has not yet brought the restoration of all things. There are still more of his brothers, as we see in verse 3. The elect from every tribe, tongue, and nation that have to be brought into his pasture so that he can shepherd his flock. Yet as we look at verses 4 and 5, there is a picture of a triumphant and risen king. Look again at verse 4. It says, And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. He stands in strength, but not his own. The strength of the Lord. He possesses majesty, but a majesty that belongs to the Lord his God. It's through God's strength and God's majesty that he brings security, that he's considered great, that he brings peace. But because of what Jesus did in his life here on earth, we get to read something astounding in Philippians chapter two. That the majesty and honor actually rightly belong to this king. 
Paul says that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then get this, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Power and majesty, strength and glory, they are all contained in the person of Jesus Christ. And if that is who is on our side, if that is our redeemer, then it doesn't matter who or what has laid siege around your heart this evening. It doesn't matter what you are staring down in your life right now. Our redeemer is this divine paradox. He is not only with you in your weakness, He has not only heard your cry and seen your pain and is able to sympathize. If that's all that he was able to do, there would be no help. No, he holds the strength and majesty to conquer any foe that you might face because he has already defeated the greatest foe that any of us ever will. The curse of sin and death. And he stands over the enemy that once mocked and cried at him. And he looks death in the face and he says, oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? And does he always work? Does he always sympathize and comfort exactly the way that we want him to and expect him to? No. But there is no siege laid against his people that he will not break apart. So case in point, we're back in 701 BC. We're in Jerusalem. King Hezekiah gets a letter from the Assyrian king and it is scathing and it is mocking. And he takes the letter and he lays it on the altar in the temple and he cries out to God. Downcast humiliated and surrounded with no way out. You can read this in 2 Kings 19. He cries out to God and he says, O Lord, the God of Israel enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You've made heaven and earth, so incline your ear. O Lord, hear, open your eyes. O Lord, see and hear the words of the enemy which he has spoken He is sent to mock the living God. O Lord, our God, save us, please. From his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. And you know what God does? He hears his cry and he rescues them. Not by sending them out to fight like Gideon and his men. No, he sends Isaiah to prophesy that the siege is going to be broken. And they go to bed. And as they sleep, God sends the angel of the Lord and he strikes down 185,000 of the soldiers and the rest flee because they have no idea what's going on. 
And the people wake up the next morning and I can imagine the first walkman, watchman walks out onto the wall and he is struck by the eeriness of the silence. And he looks and all he sees is the stillness of death. Because God has broken the siege that Israel never could. I don't want to make a metaphor out of something that actually happened in history. But friends, tonight, there is nothing that you face that God cannot overcome. There is nothing that is too hard for him. He loves you that much and he is strong enough to do it. Strength and majesty, glory and honor. Yet he's near. He came the first time as a helpless baby, but he's gonna return as a conquering king with a sword proceeding from his mouth and seven stars in his right hand. There's no sin he can't cover. There's no embattled heart he can't set free. He is near and close, and he is able to sympathize with your weakness. Tonight, as we bring this to a close, if we were to, for a moment, just kind of push aside all of the cultural trappings, trees, lights, the presence, the hustle and the bustle, we would find that the reason for the season isn't so much the Hallmark movie and Hobby Lobby decor. Now, that stuff can be innocuous, it's fine. And it can also inoculate us. What our text calls to mind tonight, what we have to remember is that as we celebrate the first advent, it should be creating in us a longing for the second. Like if our countdown is only merely to Christmas morning and after the presents are unwrapped and the tree is taken down and the lights are turned off, if we fail to continue an eager longing and expectation for the coming of this divine paradox of the sympathetic yet strong and majestic king, then we miss the point. Miss the point of the series, miss the point of this text. Tonight, we are called to fix our eyes, not on the brightness of the bulbs on the Christmas tree, but on that bright morning when we will see Jesus in the air, coming back for you and me. And the last line of that old hymn says, the joy is ours to share. That's what we're longing for. That's what we're hoping for. Not the baby in the manger, but the king enthroned in glory. So might I suggest tonight that we turn our attention to that day. We let our hearts be stirred and reminded. As we move into the next portion of our time together this evening, I just want to say if there's anyone in here tonight who feels as if they are encircled and in battle, whether that's because you've never trusted Jesus, you've never put your hope and faith in him, Come and find one of us up at the front who are going to be here to pray. We would love to talk with you and pray with you. Find John or Brad. John's the guy who's been standing up here during our liturgy time. We'd love to talk and pray with you. If tonight you're encircled or embattled for any other reason, come and let us pray with you, and we will approach the throne of grace and this great king together. Let's pray this evening. Father, we thank you for...